Good afternoon. Thank you for attending today's fourth quarter and full year 2022 Gilead Sciences Earnings Conference Call. My name is Hannah, and I will be your moderator for today's call. All lines will be muted during the presentation portion of the call with an opportunity for questions and answers at the end. If you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. I would now like to pass the conference over to our host, Jackie Ross. Please go ahead. Thank you, operator, and good afternoon, everyone. Just after market close today, we issued a press release with earnings results for the fourth quarter and full year 2022. The press release, slides, and supplementary data are available on the investor section of our website at gilead.com. The speakers on today's call will be our Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Daniel O'Day, our Chief Commercial Officer, Joanna Mercier, our Chief Medical Officer, Murdad Parsi, and our Chief Financial Officer, Andrew Dickinson. After that, we'll open the call to Q&A, where the team will be joined by Christy Shaw, the Chief Executive Officer of KITE. Before we get started, let me remind you that we will be making forward-looking statements, including those related to Gilead's business, financial condition and results of operations, plans and expectations with respect to products, product candidates, corporate strategy, business and operations, financial projections and the use of capital, and 2023 financial guidance, all of which involve certain assumptions, risks, and uncertainties that are beyond our control and could cause actual results to differ materially from these statements. A description of these risks can be found in the earnings press release and our latest SEC disclosure documents. All forward-looking statements are based on information currently available to Gilead, and Gilead assumes no obligation to update any such forward-looking statements. Non-GAAP financial measures will be used to help you understand the company's underlying business performance. The GAAP to non-GAAP reconciliations are provided in the earnings press release, in our supplementary data sheet, as well as on the Gilead website. Now I'll turn the call over to Dan. Thank you, Jackie, and good afternoon, everyone. We had the opportunity to connect with many of you a few weeks ago in San Francisco, and I'm excited to be able to reconnect now to share our strong fourth quarter and full year results for 2022, in addition to our guidance for 2023. These show the tangible impact of our business transformation, notably the growth trajectory for our HIV portfolio and our fast-growing oncology business. The team will take you through our quarterly results in detail, but I'm very pleased to highlight on slide four the strongest full-year growth in our base business since 2015, when growth was driven by the peak of HCV sales. Full-year 2022 sales at Bictarvi grew 20% year-over-year to $10.4 billion, exceeding $10 billion for the first time. Excluding Victory, our base business in 2022 grew 8% year-over-year and I'm pleased to share that our initial 2023 guidance points to base business growth between 4 and 6%. Andy will share our revenue guidance in detail, but I do want to take this opportunity to recognize the Gilead teams for the progress we've made in returning to growth. Thanks to their commitment to improving the health of people and communities around the world, Gilead is now poised to extend its reach to more patients and more challenging diseases and conditions than ever before. Beyond our financial results, our clinical progress in 2022 reinforces how far we've come. At the end of the year, Sunlenka received its first approval in the U.S. for heavily treatment-experienced adults with multidrug-resistant HIV infection. This follows the European approval in the third quarter. Sunlenka is the first six-monthly subcutaneous medicine to be approved, and we believe it represents the most exciting innovation in HIV therapeutics in recent years with significant potential across prevention and treatment. We look forward to partnering with the HIV community to increase awareness of Sunlenka and to advancing our portfolio of long-acting options. We are anticipating another potential approval any day now with the upcoming PADUPA date for Tordelvi in pre-treated HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. We also expect to hear from European regulators later this year. In the meantime, Tordelvi's commercial momentum is building with full-year 2022 sales growth of 79%. 
In cell therapy, we continue to reinforce our leadership and to execute on plans to broaden availability with Yaskarta most recently approved in Japan for second-line relapse to refractory large B-cell lymphoma. Merdad will talk you through our pipeline updates and key milestones in a few moments. For now, I'll simply note the significant expansion in our clinical programs, which have more than doubled in the last four years. We continue to add further programs, including our new preclinical candidates to partner with Lanacapavir for our long-acting HIV treatment programs, the new Phase three oak tree study for our novel oral COVID-19 nucleoside, and the five Phase three trials that we expect to initiate this year. Before I hand over to Joanna, I want to briefly review the clinical goals we shared with you a year ago. The Gilead and Kite teams have done a terrific job in both delivering as planned and acting with agility in response to changing circumstances. We had an impressive year of disciplined and determined execution in 2022 and fully expect to further strengthen our track record of execution in 2023 and beyond. With that, I'll hand over to Joanna for a review of our fourth quarter and full year commercial performance. Joanna? Thanks, Dan, and good afternoon, everyone. Before discussing our commercial results, I want to acknowledge our Gilead team for delivering another outstanding quarter and closing out a very successful year. 2022 was an exceptional year for Gilead, with our virology franchise well-positioned to continue its leadership for years to come, and significant progress in executing our oncology strategy and bringing new medicines to improve the lives of more patients all around the world. Starting on slide seven, we had a very strong quarter, delivering a total product sales excluding Vecluria of $6.3 billion, up 9% year over year, or 12% excluding the impact of FX and the loss of exclusivity of Travada and Atripla, with solid growth in each of our core franchises and growth across all geographies, once again, led by HIV and oncology. Quarter over quarter, sales grew 5%, driven by HIV, Tridelvi, and cell therapy, partially offset by HCD. For the full year, total product sales, excluding Declarate, were $23.1 billion, up 8% year-over-year, or 11%, excluding the impact of FX and the Truvada Tripla LOEs, driven by HIV and oncology. As expected, full-year Vecluri sales were down meaningfully in 2022 compared to 2021. That said, Vecluri's performance has been more sustainable than we previously expected, and it's clear that it continues to play an essential role for hospitalized patients treated for COVID-19. In 2022, Vecluri delivered $3.9 billion, including $1 billion in the fourth quarter. Overall, full-year total product sales of $27 billion was flat compared to 2021, as growth in our base business was offset by the decline in Vecluri sales. On slide 8, HIV sales for the fourth quarter were $4.8 billion, up 5% year-over-year, driven by higher demand as well as favorable pricing dynamics. This was offset in part by a smaller-than-usual inventory build in the fourth quarter, reflecting our early efforts on seasonal inventory management. Sequentially, HIV sales in the fourth quarter were up 6%, primarily driven by favorable pricing and inventory dynamics, as well as higher demand. For the full year, HIV sales of $17.2 billion were up 5% year-over-year due to higher demand, primarily related to the continued strength of Victarvi, in addition to channel mix leading to higher average realized price. This was partially offset by inventory dynamics and FX. Overall, the HIV treatment market in the fourth quarter grew 1.5% year-over-year in the U.S. and over 2% in Europe. On an annual basis, the market has grown in line with our expectations of 2 to 3%. Moving to prevention, the U.S. PrEP market grew 18% year-over-year and 3% sequentially in the fourth quarter of 2022, reflecting growing awareness. Discovery sales for the fourth quarter were $537 million, up 13% year-over-year and 7% sequentially. Notably, despite generics and other entrants, demand for Discovery for PrEP continues to increase, up more than 20% for the full year, in addition to maintaining a stable market share of over 
With these trends and the TAF IP settlement last year, Discovery's position in the growing prep market has only strengthened. Overall, this provides a strong foundation as we look to the potential launch of lenacaprevir for prep as a true long-acting every six-month regimen in the middle part of the decade. Moving to the target on slide nine, sales for the quarter were $2.9 billion, up 15% year-over-year, primarily driven by higher demand, as well as favorable pricing dynamics, offset in part by lower channel inventory. Quarter over quarter, sales were up 6%, similarly driven by higher demand, as well as favorable pricing and inventory dynamics. In every quarter since our launch, we've seen Victarvi continue to gain market share, and the fourth quarter was no exception, getting more than three percentage points in share year over year. This continued momentum is a testament to the Tardy's differentiated clinical profile, reinforced by the long-term five-year data we presented last year. Notably in the U.S., Europe, and other major markets, Bictardi remains the number one regimen for new starts, in addition to its number one position in treatment switches across most of the major markets, including the U.S. At the end of 2022, there were almost one million people managing their HIV with Bictardi worldwide. Taken all together, this has led Victarvi for the first time to achieve full-year sales of over $10 billion in 2022. Looking ahead, we're confident Victarvi will remain the leading medicine for the treatment of HIV in the U.S., Europe, and other major markets for years to come. Now, looking ahead for the first quarter of 2023 for HIV, a few points I just wanted to call out. First, with respect to pricing dynamics, as we enter the new year, we expect a typical first quarter reset in patient copays and deductibles. As always, these will have an unfavorable impact on average realized price in the first quarter. Second, a reminder that we've historically seen inventory buildup in Q4 that has led to notable drawdowns by wholesalers in Q1. While we've implemented new processes to better manage inventory dynamics from the fourth quarter into the first quarter, we continue to expect an inventory drawdown to occur in Q1 albeit at more modest levels compared to prior years. So with this in mind, we expect HIV sales for the first quarter to decline by low teens sequentially from the fourth quarter. This compares to the 18% sequential decline we reported in the first quarter of 2022. For the full year 2023, I'd like to remind you that some of our HIV performance in 22 was driven by shifts in channel mix that had a favorable impact on average realized price contributing in part to the 5% year-over-year revenue growth we reported in 2022. We expect channel mix in 2023 to be relatively similar to last year and therefore do not expect HIV growth to benefit from changes in average realized price like we saw in 2022. As a result, we continue to expect HIV to grow in 2023, albeit at a modestly lower growth rate than 2022. As we think about the future of the HIV market, Gilead is well positioned to provide many people living with HIV and those at risk of HIV with multiple options for care. To that end, we're excited about the recent approvals for Sunlenka in the US and Europe for heavily treatment experienced adults with multidrug resistant HIV infection. This first indication represents only one to 2% of people living with HIV, but it's a huge unmet medical need. These individuals have cycled through multiple antiretroviral regimens, and until now, have had very few, if any, effective options left available. Sunlenka is now approved in the U.S., U.K., and European markets, and we're working as quickly as possible with regulators and reimbursement bodies to make Sunlenka available in many more countries. We believe this first launch of Sunlenka represents a key milestone for Gilead and looking forward in the treatment and potential prevention of HIV. With Sunlenka, a true long-acting regimen is a reality. As awareness and familiarity of Sunlenka's every six months subcutaneous administration grow among healthcare providers, community groups, and people living with and at risk of HIV, we believe Sunlenka is well positioned for the future. Turning to HCV on slide 10, sales for the fourth quarter were 439 million, up 12% year over year, reflecting timing of Department of Corrections or DOC purchases and favorable pricing dynamics in the US. Quarter over quarter, HCV sales were down 16%, primarily due to resolution of a rebate claim in Europe in the third quarter of 2022 that did not repeat, as well as other pricing dynamics in the U.S., 
offset in part by timing of DOC purchases. Going forward, we continue to expect new starts to decline, but are encouraged that our market share remains over 50% in both U.S. and Europe. Sales of HPV and HTV for the fourth quarter were $255 million, as shown on slide 11. Sales were down 4% year-over-year and down 3% sequentially, primarily due to lower validity demand and pricing dynamics outside of the U.S. Moving to Declary on slide 12, sales for the fourth quarter were $1 billion, with a full year totaling $3.9 billion. It's clear that as the pandemic has evolved, Declary's role in the treatment of COVID-19 has remained unchanged as a key part of the standard of care for hospitalized patients. In fact, Declary is still the only antiviral approved in this setting, and in the U.S., Declary continues to be used in over 50% of hospitalized patients who are being treated for COVID-19. We're excited to continue to work on our oral COVID-19 nucleoside, which Murdad will discuss shortly. Moving to oncology, and beginning with Chidelby on slide 13, sales of $195 million in the fourth quarter grew 65% year-over-year and 8% sequentially. For the full year, Chidelby sales were $680 million, up 79% year-over-year. As we continue to broaden access to Chidelby around the world, we're encouraged by the growing demand in existing markets. Chidelby is now reimbursed across the major European markets. And in the U.S., demand was up 13% quarter over quarter, a growth rate almost double from the prior quarter, reflecting the solid contribution of our expanded fuel force and growing awareness. We're also excited by the expected decision from the FDA later this month, which could expand Chidelby's potentially clinically meaningful benefit into the pre-treated HR-positive, HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer setting. We estimate this represents at least 6,000 addressable patients in the U.S., and our U.S. field force has just wrapped up this launch meeting and is energized for the upcoming approval. The opportunity for Chidelby to benefit patients with pretreated HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic disease is supported by the recent NCCN Category 1 preferred recommendation for Chidelby based on the Tropics O2 data. Additionally, the European Medicines Agency recently validated our marketing authorization application for Trudelvi in HR positive or two negative, and we look forward to a decision later this year. Now on to slide 14, and on behalf of Christy and the Kite team, cell therapy sales in the fourth quarter were 419 million, up 75% year over year and 5% sequentially. Full year, cell therapy sales were 1.5 billion, up 68% year over year. The growth in the fourth quarter and full year were driven by continued uptake of Yaskarta in large B-cell lymphoma, notably in the U.S. Growing physician familiarity with Yaskarta data and Kite's industry-leading manufacturing continue to be key growth drivers. Yaskarta sales were $337 million, up 85% compared to the fourth quarter of 2021, and 6% sequentially. We're pleased to see not only strong momentum in second-line LBCL in the U.S., but also continued uptake in third-line LBCL in both the U.S. and across European markets. Takarda's sales were $82 million in the fourth quarter, up 2% quarter-over-quarter, with growing volume demand in both mantle cell lymphoma and adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Year-over-year, Takarda's sales were up 44%. We're pleased to see the building momentum of CAR-T cell therapy as a treatment class with curative potential and you start in Takarda's as the leading cell therapies of choice globally. More patients are getting access due to Kite's industry-leading, reliable manufacturing capabilities and the team's expanding footprint of authorized treatment centers around the world. And just last week, UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, recommended Yaskarta for routine use in third-line large B-cell lymphoma. This makes Yaskarta the first CAR-T available for commissioning in England. Approvals and reimbursement into additional indications that are currently available in the U.S. to other markets is expected to continue over the next year. Yaskarta was recently approved for second-line LBCL in Japan, which has the potential to be the second-largest cell therapy market outside of the U.S., and we look forward to the transfer of the marketing authorization to Gilead and Kite later this year. In the interim, although still early days, we'll continue to work with our partner, Daichi Sankyo, to make Yaskarta available to approximately 7,000 patients in the Second Line Plus setting. Kite will begin manufacturing supplies for the Japanese market through our El Secundo, California facility. And with that, I'll hand the call over to Murdad for an update on our pipeline. Murdad? 
Thanks, Joanna. I'm pleased to be starting 2023 with all the momentum of 2022 behind us. With the positive data readouts for Tradelvi and Dombanilamab, and the recent approvals for lenacapazir, the team is really excited to progress our programs in 2023 and beyond. Starting with virology on slide 16, and as I just mentioned, lenacapazir received its first U.S. FDA approval for people living with multidrug-resistant HIV in combination with other antiretrovirals. Marketed as Sunlenka, lenacapazir is the first and only twice-yearly subcutaneous HIV treatment, bringing a much-needed option for people living with multidrug-resistant HIV that, until now, had limited alternatives. Combined with the approval from the European Commission, the FDA approval is an important validation while we continue to progress our other lenacapazir-based treatment and prevention programs. For HIV treatment, we currently have 10 partner agents for lenacapazir in various stages of development, including two new integrase inhibitors, or INSTEs, in the pre-IND space. We expect to share data this year from the Phase 1B proof-of-concept study for lenacapazir and two broadly neutralizing antibodies, or BNADs, directed at HIV. And in PrEP, our clinical development of lenacapazir as a monotherapy for HIV prevention continues to progress, with two trials underway and two additional trials expected to achieve FPI in the second half of 2023. Moving to slide 17, we continue to progress our novel oral nucleoside for COVID-19, GS5245. Treatments such as Gilead Thiglory and vaccinations have improved the outlook for patients with COVID-19, but there's still a significant need for effective and convenient oral treatment options. We've been working with the FDA and other global regulators to launch a clinical development program that could enable global filings. We've initiated the phase three BIRCH trial in high-risk patients, defined as unvaccinated patients with one or more risk factors or vaccinated patients with two or more risk factors. The phase three oak tree trial will evaluate standard risk patients, which includes people aged 12 and older with no CDC-defined risk factors. We expect this trial to enroll its first patients in the U.S. in the first quarter, and will share progress when we can, which depends in part on the prevalence of COVID-19 near study sites. Moving to oncology on slide 18, and starting with Tradelby, we continue to build on the momentum of our Tropics O2 data and we announced the European Medicine Agency's validation of our marketing authorization application for pre-treated HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer in early January. As Joanna noted, we expect a regulatory decision of our FBLA in the U.S. later this month, and a decision in Europe in the latter part of the year. Tradelvi has already changed the standard of care for many patients with metastatic TNBC and advanced bladder cancer, and we expect that these regulatory approvals will be an important step forward in bringing this potentially practice-changing therapy to certain HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer patients. Moreover, recently presented data demonstrated Tradelby's PFS and OS benefit was consistent across a range of tumor trope 2 expression levels. This late-breaking post-hoc analysis presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium was consistent with Tradelby's data in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, where baseline trope 2 expression was not associated with treatment response. Moving on to slide 19, we were pleased to share data from the fourth interim analysis of the ARC-7 trial with our partner ARCUS in December as presented at the ASCO plenary session. ARC-7 is a randomized phase two proof of concept study that enrolled 150 patients the largest data set in anti-TIGIT studies released to date, with more than 100 patients across the two DOM-containing arms. We are pleased to see both DOM-containing arms demonstrate clinically meaningful differentiation compared to ZIM monotherapy across all efficacy measures evaluated, clearly establishing that the addition of dombinilumab improved the clinical responses to anti-PD-1 therapy in this population. We were also encouraged by the consistency of the safety data in the DOM-containing treatment arms, which showed no unexpected safety signals. This is an ongoing trial, and we look forward to sharing updated data at ASCO 2023. 
While these efficacy and safety data will mature over time, this fourth interim analysis fully supports our joint DOM-ZIM clinical development program and the importance of interrupting the TIGIT pathway. Based on the totality of the data seen to date, we're very confident that DOM with an FC silent design has the potential to be differentiated compared to other anti-TIGIT molecules in this space. The ongoing phase three trials of DOM added to anti-PD-1 treatments in non-small cell lung cancer will provide the opportunity to confirm this activity. We're moving very quickly with our partners in both proof of concept studies, as well as late stage trials, including the four ongoing phase three trials. Moving to megrolimab or anti-CD47 therapeutic, on slide 20, we have three ongoing pivotal trials and six proof of concept studies across six solid tumor indications. As we shared last month, the Independent Data Monitoring Committee met to review data from the first interim analysis from the enhanced study in first-line high-risk MDS. I'm pleased to share that there were no new safety signals, and the study continues unchanged. As a reminder, based on previous discussions with the FDA, we are now pursuing mature OS data for filing. The study is powered for the final OS analysis, and Gilead remains blinded to the data to preserve study integrity. We will update you again in the second half of 2023 after the second interim analysis, noting that these interim analyses are event-driven, so timing is provisional. Moving on to slide 21, and on behalf of Christy and the KITE team, I'm pleased to share details of another strong quarter of clinical progress in our cell therapy programs. At ASH, KITE had more than 25 data presentations, further demonstrating the transformative impact of cell therapies, including three-year follow-up data from Zuma 5, showing that 52% of patients with indolent lymphomas treated with Yescarta continued to respond. Following the compelling Zuma 12 data on Yescarta in frontline LVCL shared at ASH in 2021, we expect to achieve FTI in our Phase 3 Zuma 23 trial and frontline high-risk LBCL in the first half of the year. We are also progressing our Phase 2 Zuma 24 outpatient study in second-line LBCL and look forward to sharing interim safety data in the first half of this year. While there is still so much we can explore with the Escarta and Tocardis, we are also building out the pipeline to ensure the KITE will extend its leadership into new indications and next-generation cell therapy technologies. In December, we announced a strategic collaboration with Arcelix for the late-stage clinical product candidate, CAR-T-DDBCMA, which is currently being evaluated for the treatment of multiple myeloma. If approved, together with our industry-leading manufacturing capabilities, we believe we can reliably and consistently deliver a much-needed therapy to patients. Additionally, we announced the pending acquisition of Community Therapeutics, which adds an armored CAR-T platform and rapid manufacturing technology to KITE. The Ocelix transaction closed earlier this week, and Community is expected to close later this quarter. Both highlight KITE's continued leadership in cell therapy and our commitment to building a robust and exciting pipeline in cell therapies. Wrapping up on slide 22, we are sharing the key pipeline milestones that we expect in 2023, which as you can see, spans FPI, data readouts, updates, and regulatory approvals across oncology and virology. This highlights the progress that Gilead has made on its transformation journey with 59 clinical programs that are well diversified across indications and stage. As the clinical pipeline has grown, our focus on execution has intensified and we look forward to updating you on our programs as we progress through 2023. With that, I'll hand the call over to Andy. Andy? Thank you, Merdad, and good afternoon, everyone. Gilead closed out the year with a strong fourth quarter, driven by Victarvi, Vecluri, and Oncology. For the full year, our sales, excluding Vecluri, grew 8%, which is by far the strongest full-year growth rate Gilead has reported since HCV sales peaked in 2015. Of note, and excluding the impact of the A-Triple and Truvada LOEs, HIV grew 8% year-over-year, driven by continued strong performance at Victarvi, which grew 20% from 2021 to $10.4 billion. 
McTarvey continues to demonstrate strong potential for further growth in 2023 and beyond. Oncology full-year revenues exceeded $2 billion for the first time and grew 71% from 2021. Moving to our quarterly results starting on slide 24. The fourth quarter demonstrated another strong performance across our business. Total product sales, excluding Vecluri, grew 9% year over year, despite an approximately $130 million headwind from FX. If we exclude FX, in addition to the impact of HIV LOEs, total underlying sales growth for the fourth quarter was 12% compared with the prior year. Moving to slide 25, Vecluri was down, as expected, year over year, although it grew 8% on a sequential basis from the third quarter, highlighting that Vecluri will continue to play an important role even as COVID-19 progresses into its endemic phase. Non-GAAP product gross margin was 86.8%, up more than 16 percentage points from last year, primarily due to a $1.25 billion charge related to a legal settlement recorded in COGS in the fourth quarter of 2021. Non-GAAP R&D expenses for the fourth quarter 2022 were $1.5 billion compared to $1.3 billion in the same period in 2021. Higher R&D expenses were driven by timing of clinical investments, mainly in oncology, in addition to the impact of inflation on expenses. Fourth quarter acquired IP R&D was $158 million, primarily reflecting the macrogenics collaboration and the license amendment with Jounce and lower than prior years due to the $625 million charge related to the exercise of opt-in rights for Arcus assets in the fourth quarter of 2021. Non-GAAP SG&A was $2 billion, up 23% year-over-year, primarily reflecting a charge of $406 million associated with the termination of the Tredelvi collaboration with Everest Medicines. This $406 million charge includes the $280 million that we agreed to pay Everest to acquire the development and commercial rights to Tredelvi in China and other Asian territories, in addition to some other termination-related expenses. Excluding this Everest impact, SG&A was down 2% year-over-year. Fourth quarter non-GAAP operating margin was 37%, down sequentially due to the factors referenced earlier, including the $406 million Everest charge and up year over year. Excluding the Everest charge, non-GAAP operating margin was 42%. Non-GAAP effective tax rate in the fourth quarter was 16.8%, lower than the prior year, driven by discrete tax charges recorded in the fourth quarter of 2021. Overall, our non-GAAP diluted earnings per share was $1.67 in the fourth quarter, compared to $0.69 in the fourth quarter of 2021. Of note, the Everest contract termination impacted non-GAAP diluted EPS by $0.25 a share. This was not reflected in the guidance we shared back in October. Moving to the full year on slide 26, total product sales were $27 billion. Excluding Vecluri, total product sales were $23.1 billion, up 8% compared to 2021, primarily driven by Victarvi and Oncology. Excluding around $380 million of FX headwinds and the $350 million impact of the Truvada and AAAA LOEs, total product sales, excluding Vecluri, were up 11% as compared to 2021. I touched on the main P&L impacts in the overview, but we'll highlight on slide 27 that our non-GAAP effective tax rate for 2022 was 19.3%, and non-GAAP diluted EPS was $7.26 per share, compared to $7.18 per share reported in 2021. I'll move now to guidance on slide 28. We recognize that the macro environment continues to be uncertain. Our initial 2023 guidance assumes an overall stable macro environment and relatively stable FX at current rates. While inflation is expected to moderate, our 2023 guidance reflects a full year of higher expenses experienced in 2022 associated with inflation. With that in mind, we expect total product sales in the range of 26 to $26.5 billion. For total product sales excluding Vecluri, we expect sales in the range of 24 to $24.5 billion. 
representing growth of 4 to 6% for our base business year over year. And we expect Vecluri sales of approximately $2 billion. As always, Vecluri sales will continue to track hospitalization rates and will remain highly variable depending on the frequency and severity of surges. Notably, we have seen a decline in hospitalization rates in recent weeks and will continue to monitor the landscape carefully. As a result, and similar to last year, we will update you on our Vecluri expectations on a quarterly basis. Moving to the rest of the P&L. We expect our non-GAAP product gross margin to be approximately 86%, just slightly below our 2022 results, and primarily reflecting the growing contribution from oncology. For non-GAAP operating expenses, we expect R&D to increase by a high single-digit percentage compared to 2022 levels, reflecting our ongoing investment in strategic areas of growth and an increase in activity for later-stage trials. As a reminder, we had eight phase three trials start in 2022, and we expect to have 23 active phase three trials by the end of 2023. Looking ahead, we expect R&D growth to moderate, although we will step up investments as needed to support promising programs based on clinical data. Acquired IPR&D includes previously announced payments for Arcelix, community, and milestone payments for existing collaborations. Consistent with our approach in 2022, we will continue to share expected acquired IPRD expenses as we announce additional transactions. Finally, we expect SGNA to decrease by a low single-digit percentage compared to 2022. However, this is primarily due to some expenses reported in 2022 that we don't expect to repeat in 2023. If we normalize the 2022 SGNA expense for these items, we expect full-year 2023 SG&A expense to increase by a mid-single-digit percentage on a basis of approximately $5.1 billion in 2022. Altogether, we expect our non-GAAP operating income for 2023 to be 11 to $11.6 billion. Our non-GAAP effective tax rate is expected to be approximately 20% again this year. And finally, we expect our non-GAAP diluted EPS to be between $6.60 and $7 for the full year, and GAAP diluted EPS to be between $5.30 and $5.70 per share. Moving to capital allocation on slide 29, our priorities have not changed. In 2022, we returned over $5 billion to shareholders. This included dividend payments and $1.4 billion in share repurchases. Fourth quarter share repurchases were approximately $800 million. For 2023, we have announced today a 2.7% increase in our quarterly cash dividend to $0.75 cents per share and remain committed to growing our dividend over time in line with earnings growth. You can also expect to see continued judicious investments in our business both internally and externally through select partnerships and business development transactions. Finally, we will continue to use share repurchases to offset equity dilution, as well as additional repurchases on an opportunistic basis. With that, I'll invite the operator to open the call up for questions. Certainly. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by one on your telephone keypad. If for any reason you would like to remove that question, please press star followed by two. Again, to ask a question, press star one. We kindly ask participants to limit themselves to one question today and then re-enter the queue for any follow-up. As a reminder, if you are using a speakerphone, please remember to pick up your handset before asking your question. We will pause here briefly as questions are registered. The first question comes from the line of Tyler Van Buren with Cowan. Please proceed. Hey guys, uh, thanks very much for the question. It's uh, great to see yet another impressive quarter of performance from the core business. Um, at the midpoint, guidance assumes 5% year-over-year growth for product sales, excluding Becklery, yet non-GAAP EPS guidance assumes a decline of 6%. So should we expect roughly flat earnings for the next two to three years as you continue to invest aggressively in the pipeline to set up earnings growth for the second half of the decade? Or is that too conservative, and what levers do you have to increase earnings in the near to midterm? 
Hey, Tyler, it's Andy. Thanks for the question. Um, we appreciate it. Um, look, what we've said, and obviously we don't provide longer-term guidance, but I'll, I'll reiterate that the as you as you highlighted, the base business is performing very well. Um, we had another good year with Vecluri, but we expect, as you heard in our prepared comments, that the uh, COVID-19 market will continue to be dynamic. Um, and uh, and again, this year you saw, if you look at our EPS, the growth of the base business offset the decline in Vecluri, despite the increase in expenses. Going forward, again, um, a lot of our shareholders, as you know, focus on non-GAAP EPS excluding Vecluri based on their assumptions. We expect uh, using kind of that metric for our, our EPS to grow and for that growth to accelerate over the longer run as our products <clears throat> continue to deliver with additional commercial approvals, uh, expanded indications, new products entering the market, et cetera. So, um, again, um, I think what you're highlighting is the difficulty of looking through the impact of Vecluri. When we look at the base business, we have a lot of confidence in terms of the health of the business and the growth it's going to deliver over time, both on the top line and the bottom line. Hannah, may we have our next question, please? The next question comes from the line of Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Please proceed. Afternoon, guys. Uh, thanks so much for the question. Uh, I, I will keep it just to one. When you look at Lena Capravere in the U.S., just help us with maybe the expected uh, kind of launch dynamics following the, the recent approval and just with consideration of the hurdles with regard to payer access. Um, now, obviously, you guys have a long history here, but wondering if, uh, if the environment's different today uh, versus sort of pre, uh, pre-pandemic. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff, for your question. It's Joanna. Um, I, I think that we're super excited with Sunline can approval. It, do remember, though, it's really for a very specific patient population for the heavily treatment-experienced, multidrug-resistant population. And so that's about 1% to 2% of people living without HIV. Um, uh, that's about 5,000 patients or so um, in the U.S. So just to give you a little bit of a, uh, a perspective on it, the, um, that one piece of the puzzle. So far, so we just launched, so it's still early days. And we're excited about it, and I think physicians' response has been has been very strong as well. The um, I think they really see the innovation of having something every six months coming in, um, and also the promise of what it could mean in future with prevention indication as well as treatment combinations. So more to come on that one. I think it's an incredible opportunity for us to gain awareness for Sunlenka, how to use it, the reimbursement systems. And as to your point about pre-COVID to COVID, I, I think that actually we've really normalized the market. I think we're back on track when it comes to HIV, both screening, diagnosis, et cetera, and treatment. So we do believe that that's probably not um, in play as we go forward in 2023. But again, um, small small revenue, huge unmet medical need, and an incredible opportunity for patients to have something to ensure that they don't proceed to more more um, like AIDS disease versus just staying HIV positive. Hannah, may we have our next question, please? Thank you. The next question is from Michael Yee at Jeffries. Please proceed. Uh, hey, thanks for the question. Uh, maybe a question for Murdad. Um, on Trope 2, uh, the competitor, AstraZeneca Daiichi, uh, continues to be quite bullish and actually has a phase 3 lung cancer study readout, and, and the street is quite bullish on Trope 2. Can you explain your thoughts around your differentiation, appreciating your study readout, I think, in 24, and what we should appreciate uh, as to how you will compete there or differentiate, and maybe it's safety, but maybe walk me through that and uh, help us understand Trope 2 for you versus your competitor. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, this is Murdad. Um, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we do think that uh, there are a couple of things that we think about when we think about differentiation. The first is that, um, you know, we've we've now been on the market and have several approvals under our belt with Tridelphi, and um, I think that that is a an important factor for us having now been on the market uh, in, in important indications. To your point, with lung, um, we will be somewhat behind uh, where, where our uh, competition is. We do think that, uh, you know, we, the data will have to evolve for us and for them, and uh, I think, you know, so far we have been fortunate to not see ILD in our uh, development program so far. 
And so uh, we are going to um, continue uh, advancing our program forward aggressively. Um, we've, we've had a lot of um, uh, success so far. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think our, our plan is to uh, keep going ahead with the differentiated clinical development program so we can get into the broadest population as possible. Thank you. The next question is from Duke Kim with Piper Sandler. Please proceed. Hi, thanks for taking my question and, and congrats on the quarter. Uh, keeping it on Tradelvi, uh, Murdad, I was hoping if you could provide uh, a little more detail on uh, a set seven uh, and pre-chemo HR positive, HER2 negative uh, breast cancer that you're initiating later this year. Just uh, what that study design would look like and how did you come to conclude that this was the next best uh, study for this population? Yeah, hi, uh, thanks. So it was a great, that's an excellent question. And I think, uh, we haven't really talked about the design yet. Uh, in large part, we are, uh, working through both, uh, with investigators and regulators on what the best approach is going to be in that patient population. We do think that there's, um, an important, uh, need in, uh, a large population there. And, uh, we want to make sure that we navigate that pathway, uh, carefully. Um, so I think as we develop that program, as as a uh, protocol gets developed, we'll be able to share more uh, detail over time. Hannah, may we have our next question, please? Thank you. The next question comes from Colin Bristow with UBS. Please proceed. All right, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Super. Good afternoon, and um, and. Uh, Congrats on all the progress. Uh, maybe one on on Tidget and Donbananamab. The this, what is it that gives you the confidence that the SC silent construct is, is the right approach? When you know, I think at least the animal data suggests that this may not be preferred. And and then as you think about the upcoming study, Arc Seven, could you talk about the frequency of scans here? Because this has come up as a point of. Um, at least discussion with regards to the comparator trials and the frequency of scans. Thank you. Sure, this is Murdad again. Um, uh, excellent question. Thank you for that. We, um, in terms of uh, our confidence, I think uh, to your point. Look, I think there was a lot of debate uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, we we uh, shared in that uh, in that debate w with what the preclinical data. Uh, was showing, and as you know, the, the data, uh, there were conflicting preclinical data, including uh, um, some data that suggested maybe an FC sign may not work, uh, but, but which is why we ran the studies the way we did, and very importantly, why we ran ARC-7. Um, the, the objective there was really to establish whether an FC silent null would demonstrate a benefit relative to an FC um, uh, active molecule. Part of the hypothesis there is what happens in the periphery and whether depleting effector cells with the TIGIT could actually be harmful with an FC-competent molecule relative to an FC-null molecule. And our confidence really comes from our, our ARC-7 data. I think the, the ARC-7 data really answer that question. We clearly show benefit when added onto a, a PD-1. Um, the PFS data exceed our, um, our, our bar for moving forward. Uh, and so we really think that um, we've answered that question in, in, in the clinic uh, as to whether the FC null uh, matters. Anna, let's Thank move you. to our next question. Thank you. The next question is from Chris Schott with JP Morgan. Please proceed. Uh, great. Thanks so much. Um, just a question on, on the, the COVID business. I know it's volatile, and I know this, but at the same time, the street doesn't seem to model much of a tail for Vecluri or, or GS5245 at all in, in, in numbers beyond this year. Well, we've got Pfizer's and others, I think, talking about more sustainable COVID businesses, I guess, off of 2023 levels. So I just mentioned your thoughts of just how you're thinking about the business longer term, and, you know, is this a meaningful franchise for you over time, or, or are you really thinking of this continuing to fade down beyond beyond this year? Thank you. Sure, Chris. It's Joanna. 
Um, yeah, so definitely we've changed a little bit. The, our, our position on this one has evolved from 2020 to where we are today, obviously. I think we do truly believe that um, the Veclery business is much more sustainable than we've ever seen before, let alone as we think about kind of where we're going with COVID-19, including the oral that um, Murdad can speak to. The, the one piece that we've seen um, is, in, is maybe a little bit different than some of the oils that you're referring to is one is Veclery has been part of a commercial model since October of 2020. So we haven't had such big inventory loads at the government level like some others have had. So really what you see probably 85 to 90% of revenues in 2022 are truly reflecting the demand for Veclery in 2022. And so therefore coming into 2023, we feel very strongly that Veclery, because it's still the only antiviral indicated at the hospital level at this point in time, because of the fact that in many countries around the world, it is the treatment of choice when they decide to treat hospitalized patients. I think there's really um, an incredible continuing opportunity for us to ensure that Veclery has, you know, is accessible to all these patients. And so that's why we think the model is quite sustainable moving forward. I, I would also just add that, you know, our label has broadened over the last year and some. We have a very strong body of evidence, including mortality, as well as we have guidelines endorsement with the NIH as well as the WHO. So all of those people, all of those pieces together actually make for a strong, um, strong Veclery position 23, but actually and beyond. And maybe I'll just pass it over to Murdad to talk a little bit to how we're thinking about COVID-19 as a whole with the oral. Yeah, just two seconds. I, I think uh, you're right to point out the uncertainties that we all have and that we've seen with outpatient COVID. And uh, we have a lot of confidence in the mechanism of 5245, uh, given, uh, you know, wh what our expertise and the molecule itself and how well behaved it is. And we are uh, going to push forward and do our best uh, with both a high risk and a standard risk uh, study, and the, the the uncertainties in the in terms of the pandemic will really determine uh, what happens from here. So we will definitely keep you updated as to how that goes from here on out. Thank you. The next question is from Brian Abrahams with RVC. Please proceed. Uh, hey, good afternoon, and uh, congrats on the quarter, and thanks for taking my question. Um, maybe continue on the COVID theme on 5245, uh, the oak tree study. Can you talk a little bit more about the assumptions you've made in powering the primary endpoint here for the standard risk patients, uh, and then help us understand how oak tree and birch might fit together to support U.S. and ex-U.S. approvals across the two populations you're studying? Thanks. Sure. Um, very briefly, uh, the uh, – to your point, one is uh, one is in the high risk population, right? So I think that's that's important. Those are people who um, have risk factors, uh, whether or not they've been vaccinated, and then the standard risk, which is uh, people without risk factors. And uh, those are very different populations. The endpoints are different in terms of what we're looking for. In the high risk, we're going to be looking for um, you know the uh, the ability to prevent things like hospitalization, and in the standard risk, it would be looking for things like symptom uh, improvement. Um, uh, and I think, again, uh, I'll just reiterate that I think the uncertainties in terms of those factors, and importantly, the underlying event rates, um, is is real. And so we've made uh, a number of assumptions around what that background rate will be. And we've built into the trials um, checkpoints to make sure that our assumptions are correct. And we have the ability to um, modify our program based on what the underlying event rates are. So that sort of helps mitigate the risks and the uncertainties. So we've gone in fairly eyes open uh, to that. Thank you. The next question is from Mohit Bansal with Wells Fargo. Please proceed. Great. Thanks for taking my question and congrats on the progress. Uh, maybe if you could, could comment on your overall market share in HIV space and how it has been progressing, uh, uh, what I want to understand is that is there a scenario where your, your HIV business growth could be better than the market growth as you gain share at this point? Thank you. Sure. Hi, Mohit. It's Joanna. Um, I, I think as we look at HIV as a whole, we're looking at about a 5% year-on-year -year growth. 
And, and of course, that's mostly driven by demand, namely the Tarvi. And so it's probably important to talk about the share there. So our total Gilead share is still in the low 70s, and we've been quite um, stable at that level. We saw a little bit of a dip when we got the Truvada triple LOEs, and that's the only decline that we've seen there, and really held steady. Where you see nice growth, of course, is Victarvi. Our year-on-year growth for Victarvi is 20% in 50-year post-launch. And I think that's the piece of the puzzle that's really driving the overall HIV business, in addition to what's going on in prep with Discovi. Um, to your point about the market growth, we've seen market growth around 2 to 3%. Um, year on year, both in the U.S. as well as in Europe, and we've assumed that, you know, we're kind of assuming that for some years to come. And um, and I do think there's still enormous opportunity for continued growth in that market. And, you know, one of the main reasons why is there's still an opportunity for increasing treatment rates, so from diagnosis to treatment, but also further penetration in underserved patient populations. And so, you know, at this point in time, with United Nations goal at 95, 95, 95, for testing, treatment, and virology, virology suppression, we're only at about 70, 75%. So if we were to get to go, those goals, you're looking at over 350,000 more patients into the system. So I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a great opportunity for us to continue to grow Big Tarvey and our HIV business at Gilead. Thank you. The next question is from Umar Rafat at Evercore. Please proceed. Hi, guys. I have, a, I have a question on the model today. I feel like consensus models have a lot of operating leverage in the long-term estimates for Gilead, and um, and and don't consensus doesn't carry more than low single-digit opex growth across SGNA and R&D. So with SGNA growing mid-single digits this year um, after the one-timers and R&D growing high single digits, I guess should we assume that given all the collaborations and recent acquisitions that you really do need to be growing R&D meaningfully from current levels? I'm just trying to understand where the opex is heading longer term. Hey, Omer, it's Andy. Thanks for the question. Um, maybe a couple of things. Um, first, I'd highlight that, as you'd expect, we are we are mindful of expenses and don't expect R&D or SG&A to grow indefinitely. Um, that said, we're going to continue to invest thoughtfully in, in the pipeline, and, and you're already seeing, I'd highlight, the tangible benefits of doing that. So that's a really important point. Um, we started on the R&D side, as you know, we started eight phase three trials this year. We're going to, as, as you heard, start at least another five uh, in 2023, so we're we are in an investment cycle. Over the longer run, um, and maybe one other thing before I kind of talk about the long run picture. To your question, again, when you benchmark us relative to competitors, as you know, historically for both SG&A and R&D, we underspent, and it's partly why we didn't have the pipeline that would drive the top quartile sustainable growth that we aspire to and we think we're on track to to achieve today. So. We're going to continue to invest, as you've heard, um, and especially in these late phase three trials that have started, we'll continue to, con- continue to do BD, not at the same pace or, or level that we have over the last four or five years as we rebuilt the pipeline. Um, but our percent, our R&D as a percent of, of revenue this past year was below industry averages, I think, right around 19%. Same thing is true for SG&A as a percent of revenue. And even our guide suggests, I think, reasonable spend levels r- relative to comps. In the longer run, to your point, so we think about things over a a longer cycle, you know, we will not, we do not expect to grow R&D or SG&A above the rate of earnings growth. And there is a lot of leverage in the model um, we expect over the long run. So um, we're getting to the point where you're starting to see that play through, especially at the top line. And then over the coming years, we expect that you'll really see that play through on the bottom line as well. So um, thanks for the question. Thank you. The next question is from Olivia Breyer with Cantor Fitzgerald. Please proceed. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Thank you for the question. Um, what's the latest thinking with respect to the regulatory path forward from agrolimab? Um, I guess the question really is, could we see survival data from that enhanced uh, interim later this year that's actually mature enough to file on? Um, and is there anything beyond OS benefit that, that FDA has pointed to for a complete submission package? Thank you. Hi, Olivia. Uh, this is Murdad. Um, yeah, I think maybe the, it, it's good to step back and, and uh, just clarify, in a sense, our, how we're approaching interim analyses for our studies. Um, so the, the, the pivotal MAGRO study is powered for events at the final analysis. Uh, and, of course, 
we run interim analyses, I think, as is norm for the um, for the industry to evaluate things like safety, but also we spend a little bit of alpha in case there is a, a, a dramatic um, improvement in the pri primary endpoint and um, offer ourselves the opportunity to start early to benefit patients. Um, so the OS data continue to mature. Um, the next interim this year, uh, dependent on, uh, on events, of course, uh, is not the final analysis. So um, it really depends on how big the magnitude of improvement is in OS, whether that leads to a, a, a stop in the study uh, or an unblinding in the study. Our expectation is that we go to the final OS analysis. Um, uh, you know, of course, we always hope for uh, an upside uh, surprise at one of the uh, earlier interim analyses. And then in terms of approval, um, you know, I think we really need to have OS. Um, we initially had hoped that we could get, for example, an accelerated approval with CR rates alone. Um, we think we need to do both now uh, to have both um, a complete response rate, but pri are, uh, primarily be driven, not primarily be driven, but importantly have OS data as well in order to support a file. Thank you. The next question is from Simon Baker with Redburn. Please proceed. Thank you, Thank you. Question on that data and the, and the NICE recommendation. Um, clearly, that's good from a UK perspective, but, but it's, it's the case that uh, NICE recommendations are closely followed by a much larger range of countries. So I just wondered if, if this does indeed have a spillover benefit beyond the UK uh, for Yescarta. How, how important is this approval uh, in the UK? Hey there, Simon. It's Christy. Thank you for the question. So we think it's, uh, you know, very important because, first of all, it's the number of patients is still very similar at 450, but the process by which patients get approved, obviously, uh, should be much smoother and um, really giving access to um, re this recommendation really helps patients get access um, much more quickly. And so to your point, we do think, you know, as you see this uh, approval that this hopefully will have an influence on other countries, um, just like we saw with, you know, reimbursement, as we look at the reimbursement of Yaskarta in over 20 countries, you know, it was one at a time, and as, as certain countries uh, started to approve, we saw the other countries also do the same. So based on the second line, um, Zuma 7 trial as well, that'll be our next step too, to, to continue to provide the data that um, giving a patient a one-time treatment um, can really help the healthcare system and improve patient outcomes. So yes, we're very hopeful that it could have some influence. Thank you. The next question is from Robin Karnaskas with Truist. Please proceed. Good afternoon, and thanks for taking our question. Um, this is Nicole on for Robin. Um, are you seeing any safety signals in a sense for an Invoke 3 with Tradelvia and Pembro? Um, like, are the safety profiles comparable in both populations? And if so, would this hamper uptake in the first line? Uh, hi, Nicole. This is Murdad. Uh, we haven't really disclosed uh, any anything on the safety. Those studies have uh, really just gotten underway. So uh, I don't think we have anything to share yet. We'll, of course, be following that to to see if um, if anything emerges, your question is exactly the one that we want to make sure we address as we move forward. But I don't, uh, we don't have enough data at this point to make a comment one way or the other. Thank you. Our last question will be from Evan Siegerman with BMO. Please proceed. Hi guys, thanks for taking me taking my question. One for Christy. Um, you're annualizing well above a billion for cell therapy products. Can you talk about the recent work you've done to expand manufacturing and how you could think that think that could support further growth this year and beyond? Thank you. Sure. So that was our focus um, and has been our focus is really on the supply side and and being able to ensure that we have the capacity uh, to provide for patients. I think that's what you're seeing is our industry leading uh, manufacturing piece um, 
And and if you look at you know TCFO3 here in California, um, adding the new sites TCFO4 in Amsterdam and then TCFO5 in Maryland, we're really able to leverage that footprint to grow not only in you know the assets that we have today, but in future pipeline, especially as we look at you know the partnership we have now with our select and multiple myeloma. So we're very confident about our ability to supply and the capacity that we've built and the, today and for tomorrow. And really the next focus for us is, you know, we've had some really good gains on our margin improvements, but as we look at our operational, our optimization um, of our manufacturing footprint, it's yes, we need to continue to ensure the capacity, which we feel like we've really done. And now we're able to put a big focus too on the optimization piece, which we've made progress on, um, but we have, um, uh, you know, some several levers there to pull as well. So I hope you, uh, you're hearing from me a, a big confidence in our ability to deliver for patients um, from a capacity standpoint. Thank you. That concludes today's question and answer session. I will now turn the call over to the management team for any closing remarks. Great. This is Dan. I just want to do a couple of things here. First of all, thank you all for joining and your ongoing interest and in, in questions for Gilead. As usual, if we didn't get to all your questions, please reach out to Investor Relations. As you know, we're very happy to to answer those on an ongoing basis. And let me just close by, you know, emphasizing that Gilead's in a very different place than it was a few years ago, thanks to the work the team has done to transform the company. You know, we're going into 2023 in a very strong position with our Current medicines performing well and tremendous growth potential in our newer therapies as well as those in development. So what you can expect to see next is quarter-on-quarter -quarter execution and even faster progress and greater impact in the future. Thank you very much for your time today, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. That concludes today's fourth quarter and full year 2022 Gilead Sciences Earnings Conference call. Thank you for your participation.